I'm going to invite Mary to come and give us a reading this morning to, to kick us off. And it's Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 28. When he came to the territory of Caesar, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? They answered, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, you are favoured indeed. You did not learn that from mortal man. It was revealed to you by my heavenly Father. And I say this to you, You are Peter, the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall never conquer it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, What you forbid on earth shall be forbidden in heaven, and what you allow on earth shall be allowed in heaven. He then gave his disciples strict orders not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time, Jesus began to make it clear to his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and there to suffer much from the elders, chief priests, and doctors of the law, to be put to death and to be raised again on the third day. At this, Peter took him by the arm and began to rebuke him. Heaven forbid, he said. No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Then Jesus turned and said to Peter, Away with you, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You think as men think, not as God thinks. Jesus then said to the disciples, If anyone wishes to be a follower of mine, he must leave self behind. He must take up his cross and come with me. Whoever cares for his own safety is lost. But if man will let himself be lost for my sake, he will find his true self. What will a man gain by winning the whole world at the cost of his true self? Or what can he give that will buy that self back? For the Son of Man is to come in glory of his Father with the angels, and then he will give each man the due reward for what he has done. I tell you this, There are some of those standing here who will not taste death before they have seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This incident occurs in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. In all three, and particularly in Matthew, it's the turning point of the gospel. It's the moment when Jesus reveals who he is to his disciples. But it's also the moment from which Jesus sets himself to go to Jerusalem to die. All of, up until this point, he's been ministering in Galilee and in the north. And at this point, there's a turning point, And suddenly he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. This incident took place in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. You might need to move it on for me as it's not moving on. It's not moving on for Daniel either. <laughs> In Caesarea Philippi, a Roman city. However, it had been established long before as a cultic place. It was associated with pagan deities. Hey, there's Caesarea Philippi. And when the descendants of Seleucus, one of Alexander the Great's generals, I was waiting for for an applause there for getting Alexander the Great in. Those who have been in the church long enough know that I often try and get Alexander the Great in while I'm preaching. Seleucus took it over and he dedicated it to the god Pan. 
Pan, of course, is depicted with the hind legs of a goat, the upper body of a man, and with goat's horns upon his head. And he was associated with being the creator of panic. That's where the word panic comes from. It's associated with pan. Because he used to, he, the idea was that he gave confusion to the enemies if you, if you prayed to pan. He was also associated with desolate places, and Caesarea was fairly desolate. And he was also with music and with goat herds. And he was the son of one of the other gods. Some think he was the son of Hermes, some of Zeus. Now in this passage, the first response of the disciples is very general. They recount to Jesus what the gossip about him was. Was he John the Baptist? Was he Elijah? Was he Jeremiah? Was he one of the other prophets? And notice in each case, they're looking backwards. They're saying, who can we compare him with? Who can we work out who he is? They're looking backwards in time. See if they can find a parallel. Some of the disciples, of course, knew he wasn't John the Baptist since they'd heard John himself proclaim that Jesus was the one who had come after him. Jesus had also confirmed that it was John himself who had fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy that Elijah would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Jeremiah, of course, was the prophet associated with prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, which, of course, Jesus also later did in Matthew 24. But Jesus was far more than these speculations. He was far more than these ideas of who he might be. And so Jesus comes back to them with a critical question. This is what other people say I am. Who do you say that I am? Of course, Jesus is asking this of those who have walked closely with him, who have seen the miracles, who have heard all the teachings and had every possible exposure to who Jesus was. This was the moment of truth. This was the moment that all his ministry had been building up to. This was the point of revealing who he was. And Peter comes back trumps. Maybe they didn't play cards, but he came back with trumps. Oh, I missed the slide there. He comes back with this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The moment of revelation had brought understanding. Jesus was not like Pan. And I put that picture up deliberately. You see those marks in the wall? Those would have been statues of the god Pan that people would have given um, uh, obeisance to. Jesus would have been standing, scholars believe he was standing right in front of that wall when he said, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So there behind him was the picture of, image of this God Pan, son of Zeus. But Peter says, you are the Christ, not the son of Zeus, the son of the living God. And so the, the actual backdrop sets something of the context of what was going on. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He was God's Christ, or Messiah. And it's this term, the Christ, the Messiah, I want to explore in our time today. We are, after all, Christians. What does Christians mean? It actually means little Christs. It was a sarcastic term that was used in Antioch of the Christians there. You call yourselves little Christs, and they thought, yeah, we're little Christs. So you're little Christs today. 
We are followers of Christ, of course. And so I want to explore what that term actually means. The term Messiah or Christ literally means anointed ones. Oh, I haven't got any of my bullets coming up. So I'll preach without. Let's forget that. The term Messiah or Christ literally means anointed one. It starts as a reference back to the kings. You'll remember from 1 Samuel that first Saul was anointed as king in 1 Samuel 10.1. Samuel went to Saul and he found him and he poured the oil upon his head and told him that he was anointed as, as, as ruler over his inheritance by the Lord. In other words, he started out as God's chosen man to rule over the people of Israel. It was also expected that he would enact the rulership of God's power. And in 1 Samuel 10.6, Samuel prophesied that the spirit of the Lord will come upon you powerfully. And from that point on, God would be with him. Saul, of course, messed up. And God withdrew his spirit from him. However, he remained the Lord's anointed ruler, which David acknowledged on a number of times. Because you remember, as, as David was being hunted by Saul in the wilderness. Several times he had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. That word anointed effectively is the Lord's Christed, the Lord's Messiah. It's the same word. And so in the symbol, in the kings, we have the symbol of something that was being opened and revealed through the prophetic uh, of the Old Testament that would actually have its culmination in Christ, Jesus. Samuel, at the Lord's instruction, of course, then anointed David as ruler in place of Saul. And even though Saul retained his kingship for a period after this, once again, under the anointing, David was filled with the spirit of the Lord. And in the life of David, we see the powerful anointing of the Lord upon him. We also see, hear his pleas when he messed up with Bathsheba. What did he say? Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He was saying, in other words, don't remove your anointing from me. Don't remove the power and authority that you've given me to do this job. I know I've messed up, Lord, but don't take it away from me. That's uh, Saul, David's plea. And we can see that there is a clear connection between anointing and rulership that comes from the Old Testament. The Lord anointed, the Lord's anointed became a synonym, not just for the king, but also for the one who would come from God as a deliverer, a deliverer of the people of Israel. He would be anointed with the Holy Spirit for his work. What does he say in the synagogue in, uh, in uh, Nazareth? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He was the anointed. He was the Messiah. He was the one who was appointed and whom the Old Testament is foreshadowing. As we read the Old Testament, there are clear prophecies which are closely connected with the future kingdom of God on earth, which speak of this figure who would come. Sometimes he's presented as a prophetic figure, sometimes as a priestly figure, but often as a kingly figure. And this latter thought is also confirmed by the various royal psalms, such as Psalm 2. I have appointed my king in Zion, says the Lord. We also have other messianic indicators in the Old Testament. We've mentioned Isaiah 61, which Jesus quotes. But there's also Daniel's son of man figure. There is Jeremiah's righteous branch. There is Micah's ruler from Bethlehem. 
We also have the three figures of Zechariah 9, chapters 9 to 14. The king riding on a donkey, the martyr in chapter 12, and the shepherd of chapter 13. And all of these latter figures are recalled by Jesus and the show associated with himself. We have all this build-up of prophetic picture culminating in the coming of Jesus. Jesus didn't come into a vacuum. He came with an expectation because the people were looking for all of these figures that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. All of these anointed figures that had been put there and set so that um, by God in in expectation, to raise an expectation that one day the Deliverer would come. And all of these images were also associated with the coming of Yahweh himself, with God himself to be amongst his people. However, the people could not determine exactly in what form the promised one would come. Since if we take all of these images together, they could suggest multiple deliverers. And so you had the Essene community in Qumran who who thought that there were two messiahs coming, one kingly and one priestly. All of these themes led to an idea of a messiah. And their expectation was that the messiah would bring the day of the Lord. The day when the world would move from the present age to the age to come. That the Messiah would deliver and vindicate the people of Israel from pagan oppressors. That the Messiah would restore the temple such that God would once more dwell amongst his people. That the Messiah would bring Israel back into obedience to the law. That the Messiah would establish the kingdom of God on earth. All of these were the expectations that were put on this messianic figure who the people were looking for. And Jesus came to do all of these things, but not in the way envisaged by the people. The problem the people had, he was not the Messiah they were looking for. He didn't fulfill what their expectation was, but he fulfilled everything that the Old Testament prophesied he would fulfill. With Jesus' advent, the day of the Lord did come. The day when God would come and live amongst his people was fulfilled by Jesus. But his glory was veiled in human flesh. They were expecting the spectacular. But instead got a baby born into poverty in a stable. Who worked as a jobbing carpenter. And who came from Nazareth. Healing the sick, casting out demons and teaching them how to live. Not in legalism, but in a new way. God did live amongst his people but they didn't recognize him. And as John says in John 1.11, he came to his own, but those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus did deliver and vindicate Israel and all peoples, but not from pagan oppression. He didn't overthrow the Romans, but instead he overcame the principalities and powers who held humanity captive through our sin. Jesus did a greater victory than it would have been if he'd marched up to the citadel and defeated the Romans. Because he defeated the principalities and powers on the cross. And because of that there is freedom. Not just for Israel but for all people who put their trust in him. On the cross Jesus triumphed over all of them. And broke their power so that we could be free to come under his rule and reign. He vindicated or as Paul uses the word, justified us. Not on the basis of any righteousness of our own, but simply on the basis of his atoning sacrifice. 
And this deliverance wasn't limited to Israel, but extended to the whole world. All people who had put their trust in him. He did restore the temple, fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel 42. However, it was not the physical temple of Jerusalem where the presence of God would now dwell, but amongst his people, who are now the temple of the living God. You and I, when we come together, are the dwelling place of God in the spirit. And if I want to encounter the presence of God, it's not to be found in a temple made with hands, but right here where the people of God assemble. Yes, my body is a temple, but even more so, we are a temple. And God lives amongst us by his spirit. And if the world needs, wants to encounter God, then they need to come amongst the people of God. Because that's where the presence and that's where the spirit of God is. He did bring people back to obedience, but not through following the law. That's proven impossible, as Paul lays out for us in Romans 7. Instead, now we have the law written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is at work within us to bring life to our mortal bodies and to help us overcome the desires of our flesh. It's not by following a set of rules, but by being obedient to the one who is above all. He did establish the kingdom on earth, but not as expected. The people thought he would reign from Jerusalem in a political kingdom that would encompass the whole earth. And one day he will. And at the end of that passage that we read, he says, he, he will come again. And he will reign. And he will take responsibility for the, for the rulership of this earth. The writer of the Hebrews says this, In subjecting all things to him, he left nothing not subject to him. Listen to that. There is nothing that is not subject to Jesus. There is nothing that is outside of his authority. There is nothing that is outside of his control. There is nothing beyond his ability to do something about. But then the writer goes on. Yet at present we don't see all things subject to him. But we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. And we're in this interim world where Jesus is reigning, where all things are in authority, under his authority, but not everything recognizes it yet. In other words, Jesus is now king above all, reigning over all things. However, not all people want to submit to that rule. And that doesn't diminish his rule. It simply puts a time lag between his ascension to the throne and the full realisation of the submission of all things. And we live in that time lag. But one day, a day is coming when he will return, and all things will, will bow the knee. All things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right now, subjection is the matter of choice. When we become Christians... The choice we make is not just to invite Jesus into our hearts. The choice we make is to make him king. I'll say that again. When we become Christians, the choice is not just to invite Jesus into our hearts. It's to make him king. Is Jesus king in your life today? Is he king over everything? Is he reigning over all that that you are or all that I am. 
We come under his rulership. And from that moment on, everything should change. I am no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I don't belong to me anymore. I belong to Jesus. He is my king. He is my Lord. And he should have sovereignty over everything. That means how I behave, how I use my resources, what I do with my time. Everything is subject to the king of kings. We are citizens of another kingdom. We may live in the UK and live under its laws, but ultimately our obedience is to the king of the universe. And once we understand that, we will stop trying to please the people around us or please ourselves or live as the world lives. And we'll start living to please the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. See, Christ is not a surname and it's not a swear word. Christ is the title of the one who came from heaven on our behalf. It's the title that sums up his earthly ministry. It's the Christ that Jesus went, it's as the Christ that Jesus went to the cross to bring about our salvation. It is Christ crucified that Paul preached. It's the truth that the Messiah was nailed to the cross and raised from the dead that is the core of our faith. And Paul describes the message of the cross as foolishness. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, saving the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Amen.